Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Well, Rick, I want to begin today's program with the backdrop of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said in a speech on Friday that Ukraine still hasn't received the David sling from Israel to use against Goliath, which would obviously be Russia. But he believes it's just a matter of time before the Israeli government sends it. What do you know about this? Well, Jimmy, Israel has famously stayed on the fence during this whole crisis that's taking place right now because they do have Russia at their northern border with Syria. But when you start to bring into Ukraine into the picture and now Israel may be being forced to take sides here, this could change the whole dynamic there in the Middle East and in Europe. Exactly right. That's my point, folks. We're watching, and Zelensky is begging Israel for this David sling. It's an Israeli-made air defense system that Ukraine has asked Israel for several times. Despite pressure, Israel so far has rejected it, and they're begging for it. This could drag Israel into the picture already involved in Ukraine with Russia, which could be Ezekiel 38. So that's the backdrop of today's program, Rick. Let's get started because we have Ken Timmerman. We've got an extended uh, conversation with David Dolan, an extended conversation with Winky Madad, and, of course, uh, Dr. Richard Schmidt coming back at the end of the program with the Legacy Series, wrapping up the series on the two brothers, Jacob and Esau, and the punishment of the descendants of Esau, the Palestinians of today, and when that takes place. Well, let's get started with our first. Ken Timmerman joins us. He's our expert on geopolitical affairs. He's an author and an analyst. Ken, thank you for being with us today. Uh, thanks for having me on, Rick. It's always a pleasure. Well, Ken, we've got a lot to uh, look at this week, uh, events taking place all over the world. But let's start with the tragedy that happened last week with the earthquake. Everybody knows took place in Turkey and Syria, two areas that have very interesting geopolitical backgrounds. Have those backgrounds hindered the ability to have rescue operations in that part of the world? Well, they did. I mean, again, this earthquake, over 36,000 people killed. I mean, it's an enormous death toll. We have earthquakes in this country and a handful of people die. 36,000 people died. And you see some of the footage on uh, television, Rick. It's been just devastating. Entire towns wiped out. So it tells you a number of things. But first of all, the earthquake took place in Turkish and Syrian Kurdistan. That's where this happened. It was in the center of the Kurdish areas. That has hindered the Turkish government, their relief efforts, because they don't want to allow Kurdish uh, uh, civil society organizations to get involved. And it's also the war in along the Turkish-Syrian border has made it difficult for resources to get into northern Syria. But look, the other thing is the Turkish government has just been so incredibly incompetent in their relief efforts. They've been lying about what the earthquake scientists were telling them ahead of time. They could have taken preventative action. They didn't. Turns out they built the main airport in the region right on the fault line itself. So it was wrecked, making it very difficult to bring in relief efforts. Uh, they've been seizing aid trucks that opposition Kurdish parties in Turkey uh, were sending there. And you know things are really, really bad when Turkey relies on emergency crews from Ukraine. <laughs> so mm -hmm. Ukraine has people they can send to Turkey because the Turks don't have enough rescue crews themselves. 
Well, certainly a situation that needs our prayers, and we will continue to look at that situation, such a tragedy, the incredible loss of human life, as you mentioned. Well, we'll move on from that situation there, and let's go to Russia. We've talked about Russia and Ukraine quite a bit on this program, but I'd like to focus today a little bit on Vladimir Putin. Some stories coming out say that if uh, his he's basically committed to this war no matter what. If he loses, he's gone. If he succeeds, NATO will no longer be an issue to him. Right. And I think we can see that Putin is uh, dedicated to the war. He has uh, really made this uh, his signature policy. And you see that anybody who dares to uh, challenge him winds up falling out of 16-story uh, buildings, uh, uh, windows in 16-story buildings. This happened yet again last week. Uh, I, I don't know if this is the 12th, the 15th, or the 20th former Putin ally who uh, fell to her death, a woman named Marina Yankina. She was the uh, uh, financial director of a Russian defense ministry uh, area here, St. Petersburg area, and, and she fell out of a 16-story window. We don't know what happened to her beforehand, whether she was caught mismanaging managing this Western military district that she was in charge of, or whether she had uh, expressed issues with Putin's policies. But Putin is dedicated to this war. You have another of his former allies, the former head of Gazprom, Khodorovsky, who Putin jailed for 10 years. He's now living in exile in London. And he said that if Putin wins this war, if he wins the war in Ukraine, annexes those parts of Ukraine that he wants, uh, he thinks that Putin, quote, cannot stop, that he will keep on moving towards the West, towards NATO, and that NATO will not be a deterrent. Now, look, I think this is a bit of propaganda uh, on the part of Khodorovsky. Of course, he's trying to get NATO countries and NATO leaders to fear Putin and to take efforts to crush him. Khodorovsky wants the West to crush Putin. But still, Putin is uh, determined to win this war. He's going to use all of the assets at his disposal. And uh, as we're going to see in just a second, he's got new assets that he is bringing to the table as we speak. This war is far from over. And Ken, I was going to talk to you about that ally of Putin falling out of the window. I guess we don't know exactly what happened there, but we can only imagine. Uh, when you look at the way those issues are dealt with, and you mentioned other incidences, similar incidences of very powerful people that supposedly have met unfortunate circumstances. Putin and Russia act in a different way than our Western minds can comprehend, don't they? I mean, the way things work over there is different, and we need to realize that when we are talking about working with them, don't we? Well, this has always been our problem in the United States. We uh, do what's called mirror imaging. We think that other countries and other cultures are exactly like us. Oh, they want the same thing for their children as we do. And you hear all this nonsense coming from our politicians and our pundits, and it's just simply not true. They behave differently. They have a different culture. They have a very different attitude towards political violence. In this particular case, Putin has no scruple whatsoever about physically eliminating his opponents, throwing them in jail when he must, but physically eliminating them when he can. Uh, people talk about the Clinton body count. It has never been so clear cut with the Clintons as it is with uh, Putin. The Putin body count is enormous, probably in the hundreds. And these are very publicly known cases that Putin doesn't even try to dispute. Very interesting. A whole different dynamic. We need to be aware of it. 
Well, we'll continue on as we continue to talk about Russia, and they have very few allies in the world, but one of them that we have talked about on this program is still China. And now Russia and China are having military drills in South Africa. It's very interesting, huh? Uh, well, uh, very unusual and, and very interesting indeed. And, and there's been uh, quite a number of protests among South Africans to this. You see people holding up signs, no Russian war games in our waters or keep uh, Russian wars away from our shores. These are people holding up signs uh, in Johannesburg to protest this. The Russians are sending the Admiral Gorshkov, a key frigate that they have used as a missile test bed to the coasts off of Cape Town uh, this week. It came uh, into the harbor sporting the letters Z and V on its sides. These are the letters we've all seen on television marking the Russian tanks as they head to the front in Ukraine. And now they're kind of a patriotic symbol in Russia. And they're coming, uh, the Gorshkov is coming to test alongside the Chinese and the South Africans uh, a new hypersonic missile the Zircon missile that reportedly can fly up to nine times the speed of sound, can hit targets a thousand kilometers away, and it was supposed to go into service in the Russian Navy at the end of 2022. So just one and a half months ago, it has gone into production uh, in 2021, and now it's supposed to be going into service. It has not yet been used in Ukraine, but it's a devastating missile. It was designed to be able to evade all kinds of air defenses, so it cannot be shot down by U.S. air defense here or Russian air defense systems that are currently in Ukraine. And uh, that is the real key of this. The Gorshkov has been around the world testing this missile over the past year and a half. And Putin wants the new missile to go into service with its black, with Russia's Black Sea fleet. Guess where they are based? Crimea. Mm. Hypersonic missiles, very concerning indeed, especially ones with those type of capabilities. Well, as we continue to explore the Russia-Chinese alliance, the China ministry has been meeting with refiners for an update on Russian oil, which they've been getting a great deal on. Can you tell us how that situation is working? Sure. So the the Chinese have increased their imports of Russian oil, basically tripling them over the past couple of years. Uh, The more uh, sanctions the West has put on Russia, the more oil China has imported. But it's not just through their government, big government uh, refiners, Sinopec in particular. You have dozens of what are called teapot refiners in China. These are small, independent oil refiners who are importing oil with Russia. It's not necessarily coordinated by the Chinese government. And uh, what the Chinese government is now trying to do is to coordinate this to figure out exactly how much oil they really are importing, how much they plan to import, because guess what? They're getting the oil from Russia and from Iran, by the way, at significant imports. China is on track uh, this year to have a record year for oil imports. Forget the talk of recession here in the West. China is in a boom economy right now. Their their Mm. economy is expanding and they're expanding oil imports in a big way. They will be importing over 11 million barrels a day in 2023. That rivals the amount of oil that the United States imports every day from foreign sources. Very interesting, Ken, as we look at these situations, not only are there their military alliances, but they have economic alliances as well, which draw them even closer. Rick, we've got to take a break, but when we come back, let's talk about China and Taiwan with Ken and find out what's happening with those two countries right here on Prophecy Today weekend. (music) 
I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. A fuller view of the displacement caused by last week's quake is starting to emerge in Syria. More than 8,900 buildings were destroyed, leaving at least 11,000 people homeless. Those numbers are only expected to rise as more information comes in. Gospel workers in neighboring Lebanon are preparing for a new wave of Syrian refugees. Ask God to give wisdom to Heart for Lebanon, Triumphant Mercy, and many others. Meanwhile, two-thirds of teen girls have dropped out of school in one East African nation, and more than half the teen boys are out. Set Free Ministries seeks to remedy this and introduce the next generation to Christ through Light Academy. It's a brand new secondary school offering Christian education and vocational training. Pray for teachers and staff as they introduce kids to Jesus and the spiritual freedom he offers. Help Set Free Ministries launch kids into a Christ-centered future at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Every believer needs to understand Bible prophecy. Whether you're a novice or a student, we are here to help you. Just visit prophecytoday.com and click on the link for the Prophecy Bookstore. There you will find a large selection of CD sets, DVDs, and books for the Bible prophecy student written by Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and other prominent scholars. While you're there, be sure to check out Dr. DeYoung's latest series called Presidents, Politics, and Prophecy. This series examines how God has used human leaders in general and specifically the last seven U.S. presidents to set the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. This was shot on location in Washington, D.C. and is available on DVD or as a 10-hour audio series on CD. Be sure to check back often for special deals. You can visit prophecytoday.com and click on Bookstore or you can go directly to prophecybookstore.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we have been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, everything that we're seeing with Ken and soon with David Dolan here coming up in a minute, Winky Madad, man, we're getting close to the rapture of the church. We certainly are if you look at this situation. These pieces are like chess pieces on a table. They're moving into place. And if you think about it, all these events, all these things are lining up like no other time in history, just like the Bible said they would. Yes, and that's what we do when we take a look at Bible prophecy. It helps us. I call it the windshield wipers of what's taking place in the world. The windshield wipers really wipe away all the all the drops on the window so we can see clearly what's happening in the world. Well, let's continue with Ken Timmerman as we discuss China and Taiwan, Russia and Ukraine again. As we continue to, in America here, as we continue to look at our role and how we are going to face off with Russia and how we are going to support Ukraine. Are we learning lessons? And is this something that we're going to have to use maybe potentially when China does a similar thing to Taiwan that Russia has done to Ukraine? Well, everybody is talking about this and uh, U.S. military commanders are talking about it as well. Some say they expect the Chinese to invade Taiwan in 2025. Others say 2027. But the Chinese are certainly looking at Russia's failings in Ukraine, but they're also looking at our 
failings in Ukraine. And, and in particular, they're saying that we are not able to supply the amount of weapons that you would think we could supply. Our uh, artillery manufacturing is one third of what the Russians are manufacturing every day. We can't produce enough missiles to send to Russia. We're at the end of the uh, production line of Stinger anti-aircraft systems in particular. And the Chinese look at that and say, hmm, they're not going to be able to pre-position the vast amounts of weaponry that Taiwan will need to block a Chinese invasion. Well, we are certainly keeping an eye on that as well, and we will continue to monitor the situation. Last question, Ken, because I know you have to go. One of the issues that I know is near and dear to your heart is these protests in Iran that are protesting this brutal dictatorship that is in Iran right now. And I thought that those protests had closed, but it looks like maybe just recently they have started back up again and there is new life to this uh, quest for regime change there. Well, let me tell you definitively here, Rick, the protests are not over and they're not going to be over in a week, Mm. in two weeks, in a month. They are going to continue. They're going to go. It'll be serpentine. They'll they'll be here. They'll be there. This past couple of days, they've been in Tehran, but they're going to go back into Kurdistan. They're going to go back into Baluchistan. You will see them again in southern Iran on the borders with Iraq, down in the oil patch down there. Uh, They have been nationwide so far. They will continue because the opposition is united in one very simple thing. They all want the overthrow of this regime. They want the end of the Islamic Republic. They want to see a a secular government come to power. They would like to create a secular government for uh, Iran. And as I told a conference, I was uh, last week, I was up in Washington for an an Iran conference uh, uh, on Capitol Hill. And as I said there, the protests are going to continue. The Iranian people are determined to get rid of the regime. They want regime change, but they will not succeed until they have support from the Europeans and especially from the United States. Again, I'm not talking about military support. I'm not talking about boots on the ground. I'm talking about political, diplomatic, and financial support for the cause of freedom. The one thing that the Iranians will tell you, all of them will tell you, and I agree with this 100%, is a secular, free Iran is in the national security interest of the United States because they will no longer be exporting terrorism. They will no longer be trying to uh, expand to other countries uh, around them. They will no longer be uh, murdering their own people uh, and a threat to the world. I agree so much. And if you look at this situation, they deserve our support. And not only that, there's a Christian community there that you've talked about before that deserves our support as well. Well, Ken, thank you so much for the information that you've given us today. We look forward to talking to you again soon. Uh, thanks so much, Rick. And uh, listeners can go to kentimmerman.com and sign up for my emails. I got a special treat for you this week with a uh, new video with uh, the foreign desk editor, uh, Lisa Daftari. So go to kentimmerman.com and check out that video. As we continue with the program today, this is the section of the program where we have our Middle East news update. Joining us this week, as he always does, is journalist Dave Dolan. Dave, thank you for joining us. It's always a blessing, Rick. Well, Dave, we'll start with the big news this week, and there's lots of big news every week, but Israel has, in response to a terrorist attack, they have made some new announcements involving settlements. Yes, that's right, Rick. On Sunday, the Israeli security cabinet met 
to discuss uh, the Friday evening terrorist attack in the northern Jerusalem neighborhood of Ramot. And the cabinet decided as a result to legalize 19 communities in Judea and Samaria, Jewish communities that had been put up, small ones mostly, but had been put up without government authorization and so were considered illegal. So they legalized those and they announced that they would be building 10,000 new apartment units or dwellings, uh, not buildings, but individual units in existing legal communities throughout uh, Judea and Samaria. So they'll add a few hundred, a building here, a building there. And the uh, White House on Thursday, well, first, Secretary of State Blinken strongly condemned it on Monday, but the White House on Thursday, Karen Jean-Pierre, the spokesman, issued a strong anti-Israel statement, the strongest I've seen in, well, since the Obama administration, I would say. Uh, quote, she said, we are deeply dismayed by the Israeli announcement of thousands of new settlements in the occupied territories. Well, <laughs> they're not building thousands of new communities. They're building 10,000 new, you know, apartment units mostly and, and not individual homes even for the most part. So it was strong. But then she said that the White House is prepared to take a harder line dealing with Benjamin Netanyahu. So we knew that was coming. We knew we were, were reverting to the policies of the Obama-Biden administration. And that's basically what we've done with the Palestinians, who, of course, condemned the Israeli announcement. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the PA leader, called it a, an act of war and, you know, that this will stir up trouble everywhere. And the five European countries joined, joined the United States in condemning it. And the Palestinians want it brought to the United Nations Security Council. They want to a vote on it and a condemnation of Israel for it. So the question in Jerusalem right now is, will uh, Biden veto that or not? Israel usually has these resolutions vetoed by the United States, which has a permanent seat on the council. But of course, in 2016, Obama famously did not do that over one of the resolutions the first time that had happened. We'll have to see there, but uh, the Palestinians look like they will get that uh, convened, that meeting convened, and probably there will be, uh, you know, it has to has to be vetoed for it not to pass. If it gets nine votes in favor, it passes, and they believe they have at least that on the Security Council right now. But to definitely, as the government already announced, it's going to support the Jewish uh, called settlers, but the Jewish residents of Judea and Samaria in a greater way than the previous government did, and even in a greater way than the previous Netanyahu governments did, because, of course, uh, he had sort of central partners then, not just the partners from the religious world or the, the right wing of the political spectrum. Well, David, one of the things that struck me about that report, and we talk about words having meaning, but when the White House press secretary says that there are thousands of settlements that gives a, a misconception of what's actually taking place there, and it perpetuates a narrative that most likely she wants to perpetuate. There's not thousands of settlements. We're talking about a limited number of communities and not thousands of settlements, correct? Today, there's 200 or so existing settlements, 200. Most of them were built quite a few years ago in the 80s and 90s. Uh, very few new ones have been built since then. There were these illegal ones, small ones that were set up by people without formal permission to do that from the Israeli army, which they are supposed to get. 
But uh, yes, these things do have consequences. She said it live on Fox and CNN, and the CNN is broadcast around the world. And she apparently doesn't understand exactly what's going on there, but they're certainly not going to be building uh, thousands of new settlements in Judea and Samaria. They just want to strengthen the existing ones that are 90%, as you know, built right along the Israeli border proper, the previous 1967 border. They're built right inside of that in Judea and Samaria. And there's a few isolated ones here and there. There's a community in Hebron that has a lot of trouble often in the town of Hebron, but most of the Arab towns do not have Jewish residents in them at all. Jericho has none, for instance, and uh, Nablus and these other places. So it's an exaggeration, but it just shows which way the wind is going. And uh, again, it'll be very interesting to see if the White House vetoes uh, any uh, Security Council resolution condemning this, uh, this new announcement. Well, I certainly think that whatever way the White House goes there, we'll know where the president, President Joe Biden, where he's going to be standing, whether he's going to be standing with Israel and not in the future. And I I do remember when President Obama did not veto that, and it was certainly a statement. I remember that as well, Rick. And we did a video, President's Politics and Prophecy, which would be good if people want to find out the statements that presidents have made in advancing the narrative of Bible prophecy. We'll take a break, and when we come back, we'll have more of David Dolan right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Is it paranoia or a potential plot? Either way, Moldova is still concerned about a possible Russian-fueled coup in the country. Moldovan President Maya Sandu has gone so far as to ban local soccer fans from attending a soccer match against a Serbian team. Russia, meanwhile, denies the accusations. Eric Mock with Slavic Gospel Association says there's a strong network of churches in Moldova, and no matter what happens, the believers there are ready to be Christ's ambassadors. Join us in praying for peace. And prison conditions in Kenya haven't changed much since the early 1900s. Life can be incredibly disturbing and hopeless. Mission Cry ministers in a Kenyan women's prison distributing Bibles. Jason Wolford with Mission Cry says these Bibles are radically changing lives and women are beginning relationships with Jesus. You can see pictures from the ministry and ways to get involved at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr., and along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. As you can see, so much is happening, and we are focusing on the nations, the countries that are included in the passages of the Bible that help us to understand why these countries are doing what they're doing. And uh, God lays it out for us in his word so that we can understand where we are in the times in which we're living. Well, let's continue with David Dolan. And uh, as we look at politics, again, from the United States point of view. Well, demonstrating the other side of the political aisle, former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and I'm sure uh, also a future presidential candidate, has basically said Israel has a biblical claim on the area, and he called it Judea and Samaria, which uh, we believe is the biblical name as well. So he's out there essentially trying to draw a difference or a line between him and, and the current administration, correct? He is. Uh, Nikki Haley mentioned that also when she uh, formally announced her candidacy for president. I think most Republican candidates feel the same way. Haley praised the moving of the embassy to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv and noted that she was Secretary 
of, or she was UN secretary when that happened uh, under Donald Trump. So yes, he he pointed out this is ancient Jewish uh, heartland for 3,000 years. Uh, The Jews didn't leave uh, Judea and Samaria or Jerusalem or anywhere on their own volition. They were tossed out by the Romans, essentially, and prevented over the years by mostly Muslim regimes from uh, returning or, or rebuilding or whatever, but they've done so in the last hundred years, and there's a Jewish state that turns 75 in just a couple of weeks. I'm getting there, but not that far yet. But uh, Pompeo's statement was, was correct. It's Judea and Samaria. It's only been called the West Bank since Jordan conquered it in 1948. The West Bank of the Kingdom of Jordan is its full official Jordanian title, but not its real name. And uh, Jews have lived in those biblical areas for a long, long time and in Jerusalem for many, many centuries. Uh, and some Jews did remain over the centuries. They didn't all get tossed out, but there it is, uh, uh, Rick. And I think uh, Pompeo's uh, statement, too, that the peace process is not going to end up with a two-state solution. He said that very clearly in this podcast interview. Um, goes again against what the White House said, uh, Pierre said, that these settlements harm the two-state solution. Well, as you and I have talked about many times, it takes two parties to make a peace treaty. The Palestinians are basically under the thumb of Hamas and Islamic Jihad, and even the PA is pretty radical, but they are totally against any recognition or peace with Israel based on their religious views, backed by Iran, Hezbollah, and other parties around the world. So the stage is nowhere near set for any sort of peace talks, let alone any resolution of this. So the White House keeps talking about it. The previous White House under Trump dropped it, basically realizing it's ridiculous, not going to happen. And the Israelis just want to maintain as much peace as they can. But Abbas said that this new announcement from Israel was, quote, a declaration of open war against us. So war is what he's talking about, not peace. Israel's trying to keep it as peaceful as possible, but it's the Palestinians that want to see Israel totally destroyed, not Israel that wants to see the Palestinians totally destroyed. Well, we'll continue this discussion with Winky Madad in our next segment, but we'll move on here. And this is all taking place within the backdrop of massive protest in Israel. Uh, basically, uh, this new government is trying to overhaul the judicial system. And I think it's fair to say that it will give more power to the legislators now. Now, that's important because these legislators are pro settlements. And so it's all interconnected. But uh, what's going on with these protests? What do we need to look at? And how are they going to turn out? Well, they've continued now for over a month. And it usually is at least 100,000 people that gather every weekend, every Saturday evening. Mostly it's been in Tel Aviv. Of course, Tel Aviv is a very left-wing city. So that's not all that surprising. But uh, some very prominent politicians and Journalists and authors and others uh, have spoken and joined the um, calls for the government not to touch the uh, current uh, system. Well, what it would mainly do, Rick, the Justice Minister Yariv Levin announced the full details last week. It would just take 61 votes in the Knesset, just a bare majority of one, to override any um, Supreme Court decision that cancels or that deals with Israeli laws or legislation, which of course a lot of the cases do. 
If all 15 judges on the Supreme Court, I mentioned last the time that there were nine, but it's usually nine of the 15 that sit on any one case, not the whole 15 unless it's an extremely important case. But if all 15 agree that the Knesset cannot override their decision, then it remains. But if the Knesset votes against whatever they rule, uh, 61, and as you say, the current government has 64 in it, and they're all pro-settlement, all of the Likud members are, and certainly the national religious parties are, and and the others. So it's definitely a shakeup of the system. Really, Israel doesn't have, Rick, three branches of government like the U.S. does. It has, uh, like in Britain and elsewhere, parliamentary systems. It really has two because the government, the sitting legislator, is where the government comes out of. And all of the ministers are members of the Knesset as well. Usually they don't have to be, but they almost always are. So you just have really the legislator slash government executive and then the Supreme Court. And the court has uh, really taken a lot of power to itself over the years, many Israelis believe, not only on the right, Rick. There's several centrist commentators and politicians that feel that way, too, that they've just gone over the line in their ruling. So and there's other things that Levin wants to do, but strongly opposed. And we keep hearing calls. This will lead to civil war. This will lead to the dissolution of the government. And We have uh, renewed calls from the United States not to proceed with any of these reforms from Blinken, Anthony Blinken and others. So, you know, whether it's their business or not (laughs) is anyone's question. But, of course, the U.S. is a close ally, does provide a substantial financial aid to Israel. And the Israelis certainly pay attention to whatever the White House is saying. But in this case, uh, the parties all pledged in the election they would do this. They would weaken the power of the Supreme Court. They're um, proceeding to try to legislate that, and they probably will succeed in passing at least some of these changes that they call reform. Well, David, as you said, I think both the left and the right agree that there does need to be some reforms. I just think that some of those in Israel right now don't want this current government to be the one doing the reforming. It'll be very interesting, and that'll be important for the future to see how that turns out. Can you tell me, David, these protests, and of course we've seen this here in the States, you see it all over the world nowadays, they're peaceful protests, but sometimes peaceful protests become not so peaceful. Is there a danger of that taking place in Israel? Oh, absolutely. It's a very emotional society, as you know. You get two Jews, you have five opinions, is one of the jokes that goes around, and people take politics very Seriously, they have to. It's a small country surrounded by enemies that are vowing to destroy it. Uh, Most of those countries much larger than Israel, like Iran, 10 times larger in population. And uh, they have to, you know, stay alert and stay afloat. And they hang together pretty well, but they have strong opinions. And 71% of Israelis, by the way, voted in the last election. Voters uh, voted in the last election, Rick, much higher than the U.S., participation. So it's a vital, vibrant democracy. But this is a strong uh, issue for a lot of people on the right, and obviously for a lot of people on the left. And yes, there could be some real serious actual clashes. In fact, we've had scuffles already, but nothing major, but it certainly could happen. And with the new police minister being 
uh, from the right and being a strong supporter of the settlement and being a strong supporter of these uh, reforms, that we could see the police even divided on how to respond and do we obey our leaders in this one or do we side with the left? Uh, there's a lot of potential for trouble there. And uh, the Hezbollah leader this week in a speech condemned Israel over the uh, gas uh, project going out in the Mediterranean. I won't get, go into that, but made some other threatening statements. But he said Israel is in danger of imploding from within as well as uh, from the Palestinians and its outside uh, antagonists. So uh, we'll see. But pray for the peace of Jerusalem, for the peace of Israel. Very, very trying times indeed. Certainly is, David. And if you look at the situation with the settlements and the, the issue of Judea and Samaria, and then we look at uh, this these protests that are taking place on this judicial overhaul, it's all very connected. And these protests, the inner workings of Israel's democracy is going to affect many of the issues that we very closely keep an eye on, such as the Temple Mount. And we talk about the Temple Mount very often. We keep a very close eye. And with this new government, it's also a flashpoint for sure. But it's been under the custodianship of Jordan and King Abdullah and Jordan. We talk about that often. Listeners to this program will know that. Well, that custodianship is coming under fire. Well, it is, Rick. Of course, the tensions have been mounting there as well as everywhere else over the past few years. And we've had uh, rioting up there, as we've talked about, and nobody uh, killed on the Temple Mount recently, but we've had people wounded and Israelis also stoned again at the Western Wall below. But yes, Jordan has uh, had the official custody, as it were, custodianship, I should say, over the Temple Mount since uh, the 1920s. So the British let them more or less run the place, Britain controlling both what became Jordan and became Israel in those uh, decades. And they've maintained that relationship Israel has, maintained the freedom of Jordan to act as the overall custodian. Why? Because uh, the Hashemite kingdoms are all much more moderate than any of the Palestinian groups, say the least. And, of course, uh, now have a formal peace with Israel since 1994. And uh, they have uh, a special role, they believe, on the Temple Mount. Well, uh, you sent me an article by David Weinberg, an Israeli, that pointed out that the speeches that are monitored by the uh, Palestinian Media Watch uh, group, uh, every week they tape the speeches that are given on the Temple Mount at the Al-Aqsa Mosque every Friday, and they're very fiery often. I lived just a half mile south of the Temple Mount for many years, and I could hear the speeches every Friday over the loudspeakers. That's why they can tape them. You can tape them from two blocks away, and all sorts of uh, things are said. Uh, Kill the Jews, basically, is shouted. The Quran is quoted that in the end times, Muslims will see a Jew hiding behind a tree and they'll go kill him. Uh, That's quoted and many other things and provocations basically every week come out of there. Uh, And a lot of them comes from uh, Mahmoud Abbas's senior advisor, Mahmoud al-Habbas. He often gives the Friday speech there and he gives a talk on Palestinian television every Friday evening, uh, a Quranic uh, talk. And he says all sorts of uh, anti-Israel things. Now, he's not Jordanian, but again, the Jordanians, as Weinberg pointed out, they allow this to go on. They never try to curb this speech. Uh, There are calls to violence in these speeches, incitement. 
and uh, stirring up everybody. And it, it's broadcast on Palestinian radio, by the way. Also, the, the mosque speaks on Friday, every Friday midday. So um, people can hear it who speak Arabic all over the Middle East. And many do listen. So it continues to stir up that hatred all the time. And Weigbert said, look, we're, we're willing to have Jordan have this role, but they have to do a little bit more to try to keep a lid on things. And, you know, the lid comes off. We have to go up there. I'm summarizing what he said. We have to go up there with our forces. There's clashes. Then we're blamed and condemned for this. And they use anything, you know, a, a, a cabinet minister visiting up there as a provocation and anything at all they use. And Jordan doesn't stop this is the point he was making. So uh, maybe he was suggesting it's time that that role be um, changed or at least lessened to a, a certain extent. Well, David, we look at these events taking place. We've talked about the Temple Mount today. We've talked about the division in Israeli politics. We've talked about the fight over the area that we call Judea and Samaria, land that God gave to the Jewish people, gave to Israel, the, the world calls the West Bank. We talk about all these things. They're all setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled, aren't they? They are indeed, and uh, all of this was predicted. If there's anybody listening out there that is unfamiliar with the Bible or the Scriptures, as you well know, prophecy is a major part of the entire Bible. The return of the Jews was forecast in many places, Ezekiel, uh, Daniel, Isaiah, on and on. They've returned, and it said they would return in Ezekiel to the hills and mountains of Judea and Samaria, as well as Jerusalem and the coast. It names five areas in Jeremiah. Uh, where they would return to, and one of them is Judea and Samaria, the other is the coast, Jerusalem, the cities in the north and the south, and they're rebuilding the ancient uh, land uh, with opponents, as when they rebuilt the temple in Ezra's time in Nehemiah with many opponents against them, and so they have to have a gun in one hand and a shovel in the other, and that's the way they've uh, rebuilt the Jewish state, and they're one of the oldest continuing nationalities that you can perceive, you can, you know, link out from ancient times, 3,000 years, the Chinese are another, and there's a couple more, but that's it, uh, and they're back in their old land. So God's Word is being fulfilled, and the rest of it, including the return of the Messiah and His glorious rule on earth, is going to happen too. Well, amen, David, and I, um, our listeners to our program, appreciate all that you do, not only as a journalist, but as someone who knows what the Word of God says. We appreciate you coming and talking to us every week. We look forward to talking to you again soon. As you know, I'm happy to do it, Rick. God bless. Rick, I'd like to bring in Winky Madad, former mayor of Shiloh, to help us to better understand from a perspective in Israel, in the settlements, and the promise that God gave to the Jewish people of the land. Not only the land today that they have, they only have 10% of what they are, have been promised throughout eternity. Winky Madad joins us today. He is our good friend. He's the former mayor of Shiloh. He is a man who's in the know in Israeli politics, and that is something today. There are so many things taking place in Israel. I was telling Winky before this uh, conversation, Winky, there's so many things uh, happening in Israel typically, but now it's even more so. And so, Winky, thank you for joining us and talking with our listeners today. I'm pleased and privileged to be once again on the program. 
Well, Winky, I'd like to start this conversation by talking to you about this situation with the settlements. The government is looking to make official several new settlements. We know that you're a man that lives in the area of Judea and Samaria. That's what we call it. The world may call it the West Bank, and that is the area that is in contention here. Can you give us your take on the situation as it stands right now? Well, of course, uh, one has to know that these communities have been existing in some cases for decades, uh, or at least two decades. Uh, One of them actually is just across the road from Shiloh. The son of our rabbi, our former rabbi now, was killed in a terror attack north of here at a place called Yitzhar that overlooks uh, Shem, or, or Nablus as it's called sometimes. And the community was set up just across the road from us. You can see it almost I have to walk out of my house maybe 100 meters and I can already see it. And it's been in existence, as I said, for over 20 years. So there's, it's nothing, nothing has changed on the ground, shall we say. Uh, the only thing that has changed is, in a certain sense, their legal status, in that they can get more official assistance. They'll be able to get more permanent structures, even some infrastructure, not a major change on the ground. You probably even wouldn't notice it if you passed by. Uh, so I don't think that uh, people should get too excited about that or, should I say, nervous or anxious, including people either in the White House or the State Department or in the uh, European Union. I always find it difficult that people would say Jews building buildings and homes uh, cannot happen. Uh, when the Palestinian Authority itself bans basically Jews from living among it, and Jordan does to a certain extent too. So we have a, a light shined on the Jewish communities or the settlements in Judea and Samaria, and no one looks at what our neighbors are doing and seeing, well, are they doing better than us? Are they doing the same thing as us? Are they willing to compromise and live with coexistence or, or not? And that's the, that's the real problem. Uh, we've proven in the past, Israel has, not that I've agreed all the time with those decisions taken, that communities never have stood in the way of real peace or what people or politicians thought was real peace. So uh, I think all this is just part of the background noise that our neighbors who are enemies to us use to confuse people and and, and make sure that the real issues don't get discussed. Well, I certainly believe what you're saying, and I agree with you there. Uh, And it's just, it's very interesting. These quote-unquote settlements that are being made official, they've been around, as you say, they've been around. They're filled with Jewish families right now. And I know this is a word that's thrown around quite a bit in the Middle East, especially now, the status quo. Well, the status quo is not changing. Isn't that correct? I mean, especially with these communities, right? Essentially, uh, that's completely true. Uh, Nothing has altered here, uh, either in terms of major demographic growth or extension of land being resettled. It's just a recognizing a reality that has been uh, for many, many years here and allowing them to benefit from a better life and opportunities 
to live uh, with uh, getting rid of all the temporary electricity, water, or all these things that you can describe of small villages that they need uh, rather than have people walking around in mud streets or, or being unable to get any houses built or, or things of that nature. Well, due to this reaction, you see the Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas is lobbying the UN to condemn this, and we're looking at a resolution that President Biden may or may not veto. And uh, of course, with all these different things going on, uh, it, it feels like this hubbub is being raised to fit certain people's narratives, things that people wanted to do anyways. Now they are able to do it and use this as the reason. Are you concerned with some of the repercussions and what do you think might be the worst repercussions? Well, the, my basic problem is that Israel's actions are always being sort of equalized, if I can use that term, with the Palestinian Authority. Uh, they have to do this, Israel has to do this. We have to de-escalate, everybody has to de-escalate. We, we, we condemn the violence on both sides. Uh, when Israeli violence, quote-unquote, is 99.9% .9 of the time security uh, forces taking action against terrorists who are killing sometimes, as we saw last week, uh, two little children, two little boys, the age of six and eight, by ramming their car into a bus station. In other words, there's not a war going on here between armed forces of the Palestinian Authority. Most of the losses of Israelis, wounded and worse, are always among the civilians. They're not really attacking uh, military bases or blowing up army camps, God forbid, or something like that. It's always the civilians among us on both sides of the Green Line that are paying the price for the Arab rejectionism of Zionism, of Israeli national identity, and of our presence here anywhere, whether it's in Tel Aviv or in Shiloh. Well, Winky, all of this is taking place against the backdrop of these protests against the judicial overhaul that has been proposed by the Netanyahu government. Uh, since you're there and you're a man on the ground, you've seen these protests. Can you give us a report? Anything interesting that has taken place or that you've noticed during these protests? Well, I'd like to uh, bring up just two uh, incidents that have come up that maybe will help people listening in on this program understand a little bit of uh, the craziness of the situation. One of the issues of the judicial reform that's being proposed by the government is that some of the powers of the what we call here the attorney general or the legal advisor to the government, which is the exact translation of the Hebrew term, uh, has too much power in the sense that at the moment it's, it's a she. It could be a he, but uh, at the moment it's a she. And she has deputies in every single ministry, okay? So in other words, if a minister wants to promote a policy or do something, a legal advisor can stop him, not by saying it's illegal, but by saying, I don't think it's the proper thing to do. And he has the backing of the legal advisor herself. Now, the president of Israel, President Isaac or Yitzhak Herzog, has suggested that the parties, uh, the opposition and the coalition government, calm things down and get to talking. So Mr. Netanyahu asked the permission of the legal advisor, the government's legal advisor, 
to meet with Herzog and to meet with other people involved because, uh, and you might ask me, why does he have to ask permission? Well, the legal advisor has told him that he shouldn't talk about anything to do with judicial reform because he's on trial. And if he's on trial, he might be somehow influencing judges who might deal with an appeal of his in, say, four to five years. Okay? So Netanyahu has been banned or prohibited. <laughs> the most political, central element in the whole situation has been banned, prohibited by the attorney general mm -hmm. from engaging in dialogue with the other side in order to calm everything down and see what could be done. <laughs> okay? That's one thing. The second thing is some of the demonstrators are taking this to extremes. They're calling Israeli officials, uh, I'm not going to say the word, but German politicians from the mid-30s, mid if everybody gets the hint of what I'm saying. Uh, a dictatorship, fascists, etc., etc. This week, the end of this week, on Thursday, the police caught demonstrators who stole a tank from the Golan Heights Memorial, one of the memorials at the Golan Heights, where a lot of tank battles took place in the 73 war, painted it with signs reading democracy, and were intending to drive it into the center of the city to be used on Saturday night's demonstration. I mean, this is a war memorial for the fallen of Israel, right? And they wanted to say, I think what they want to say is, we're willing to fight the government's proposal, even using tanks. Uh, this is getting completely out of hand in terms of at least verbal uh, extremism, and it needs a whole new program to talk about it, but I just wanted to point out how crazy things are here on the internal political scene. Well, Winky, thank you so much for taking your time there. You're in Shiloh, in the area of the West Bank, or as we call it, Judea and Samaria, reporting live for us. Thank you so much for doing that, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you very much for having me on the program once again, and goodbye to you and our listeners. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, the Legacy Series, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, as people study God's word, they really need resources. We all need resources. I use several commentaries that I trust. You use commentaries. We have books and we have DVDs and CD series at our ministry, don't we? Yes, if you go to prophecytoday.com, you'll be able to take a look at some of the things that we have in place to help you study. In fact, on this program, we spend a lot of time talking about politics and, and things and events that are taking place around the world and how they fit into Bible prophecy. If you go to our website, you look at the materials that we have, you can be able to look into the Word, you can be able to study the Bible, and you'll be able to see why we look at these events, why we look at these things that are taking place, because it falls right into place with what God says in Scripture. So I encourage you to go to our website. We have some free resources. We have devotions that you can look at every day. We also have all of our audio programs. But if you go to our bookstore, 
we have a wide array. We have DVDs, we have CDs, we have PDFs, we have books, we have all of these different things to help you in your study of God's prophetic word. Folks, I do uh, I want to encourage you, keep studying God's word. That's very important, and we'll find out later as we talk about the revival, what God's word says about revival in the land and how it's important. Our nation was founded on a great awakening, and we'll touch base on that in just a moment. But first, in the Legacy Series today, we come to the conclusion of our series on the twin brothers, Jacob and Esau. As we come to the end of our study today, we will examine the prophetic passages that lead us up to today and see how what is happening in the Middle East between the Israelis and the Palestinians is actually setting the stage for Bible prophecy to be fulfilled. Please take your Bibles and let's go to the little prophetic book of Obadiah, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen, arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen, and thou art greatly despised." Verse 3, the pride of thy heart hath deceived thee. Thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. This is history. Because where did these Edomites go to live? They went to live in a place called Petra. Let me explain what it's talking about here. Let's say this front aisle right here is the King's Highway. This is the way of the kings and the merchants coming out of Africa on their way to the Persian Gulf. The King's Highway came right by the entrance of Petra. Let's say this aisle right here is the Sikh, C-I-Q. That is an Arabic word meaning high, narrow gorge. This Sikh is about a mile and a third long. At some points, it's as wide as my arm span. It expands out to about 30 feet. It's about anywhere from 300 to 500 feet high. And this is the only entrance into Petra that you can get into this impregnable city. This is where the Edomites under Esau went to live. What they would do, they were notorious for killing the merchants and stealing from them. The merchants would come by the king's highway. They would run out the Sikh. They would rob the merchants. And then you can see the narrowness of the Sikh or the gorge getting into the city. It's so narrow, they could put three or four men here and hold off an army. But should they get inside the Sikh, which is 25 square miles, the cliffs in there are 2,000 feet high. Some man-made caves, some God-made caves. And they, like... Eagles nesting in the clefts of the rock would hide there. That's what Obadiah says. You're proud because you think nobody can bring you down. Nobody. But God had a plan. The only friends to the Nebataeans, excuse me, to the Edomites was the Nebataeans from Saudi Arabia. They're the famous stone carvers. If you've ever been to Petra, you see the results of their work. As you get into Petra, right there at the entrance is the treasury building, five stories high, carved in the sandstone with the colors of the rainbow. As the sun moves across the sky, the colors change. It's majestically beautiful. They were the only friends of the Edomites. 
And they got together for a banquet. Go over to chapter, uh, to verse 7 of the book of Obadiah, which is going to tell us exactly how they turned on their good friends, the Edomites. Verse 7 of the book of Obadiah. And all the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding of them. God is going to run the Edomites out of Petra. And the Nebataeans will take over. This is 500 years before the birth of Christ. They go out, make a westward turn. They cross the Jordan Valley. They go into southern Judah. And they become the Idumeans. Idumeans. That's what Herod the Great was, an Idumean. They're descendants of Esau. And there they establish another kingdom. They, however, are going to face judgment. Because Bible prophecy says these people will come to judgment. Once they got there, they became powerful. In fact, Herod the Great, supposedly the king of the Jews, appointed all high priests. It wasn't done reluctantly through the Jewish law. And he comes to power. It's 70 AD. The Romans under General Titus come in to wipe out the Jewish people. They're going to destroy the temple. They're going to devastate the city. They're going to disperse the Jews to the four corners of the earth. Coming to the aid of the Jewish people are their cousins, the Idumeans. Titus was successful. He disperses Jews to four corners of the earth. He disperses the Idumeans, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, to the Balkans, to a place called Bosnia, where they would go to live and start a community. But God's judgment is going to be upon them. Let me tell you. Let me jump over to 1917. General Allenby, he's leading the British forces in the Jezreel Valley. They defeat the Turks. They come into Jerusalem. There's going to be a mopping up exercise in Jerusalem. General Allenby hears the Turks are going to surrender. He gets ready for them to surrender. He gets on his white horse. He rides up to the Jaffa Gate. As he approaches the gate, dismounts from his horse. Now, I know this story because of Bertha Spafford. She was the youngest daughter of Horatio Spafford, who wrote the song, It's Well With My Soul. He was a missionary in Jerusalem. They were on the terrace of the hotel overlooking the Jerusalem Museum, where there on the steps of the museum, the surrender was to take place. As General Allenby rode up, dismounts, gets off his horse, the aide said, Sir, aren't you going to the surrender ceremony? He said, I am. He said, why did you get off your horse? He said, because one day my Savior, Jesus Christ, will ride a white horse into this city. He said, I'm going to walk. He walked in. He gets the surrender from the Ottoman Turkish Empire. And then he has a responsibility. He sees a man over there who's the highest Muslim cleric. I've got to name a mayor of Jerusalem. Mr. Husseini El Husseini, you're going to be the mayor. Well, that's a cute boy that you have with you. What's his name? Amman al-Husseini. Oh, that's your nephew. That's 1917. Amman al-Husseini grows up. He goes to Mecca and Medina, makes the Hajj. He's called the Hajj Amman al-Husseini. He becomes the Mufti of Jerusalem, the highest ranking Muslim in all of the Middle East. He gets a communique from Adolf Hitler. It's now the early 40s. Adolf Hitler says, come join me to the solution to the Jewish people. Hajjaman al-Husseini, 
Hitler's Mufti, the name of a book written by two University of California professors, goes and he gets the word from Adolf Hitler. Here's the plan. I put up a one million watt radio station, the most powerful radio station in the world. It's off the coast of Monaco. By the way, today that's Trans World Radio. Today it was a Nazi communication center. Go on that radio station. Call for the Muslims of the world to rise up and kill the Jews. It's recorded at the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. He goes on. For the honor of Allah, Muslims of the world, rise up and kill the Jews. And then Adolf Hitler says, you know how I've been winning these wars in Europe? With a blitzkrieg. A blitzkrieg, I put my army in the form of a V. At the apex of the blitzkrieg, I put the elite commando unit from Bosnia. And they go in to take over the country. Get your commando unit from Bosnia. Go back to Israel. He goes back. And there in Israel, the Bosnian elite commando units in the War of Independence try to destroy the Jewish people. It's their heritage. They fail. Oh, by the way, the Hajjaman al-Husseini, he had a nephew whose name was Yasser Arafat. Do you understand what I've just told you? Yasser Arafat. Hajjaman al-Husseini, Husseini al-Husseini, Herod the Great, Haman, Agag, Amalek, Esau, all wanting to kill Jews. Malachi chapter 1 says, the Edomites will say, we will return. We will build. And God says, I'll call your borders the borders of of wickedness because I have indignation against you forever. Ezekiel chapter 35. There's a judgment pronounced, listen, against Mount Seir where the Edomites went to live. Because you killed your brothers and stole their land, I will wipe you out as if you've never been. Have you still got Obadiah? Look at the last couple of verses and we'll close. Last couple of verses. Verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, so it shall be done unto thee. Thy word shall be returned unto thy own head. Look at verse 16. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain. The holy mountain is the temple mount of the city of Jerusalem. Does that mean these Edomites will go up on the temple mount and... Get drunk drinking Jack Daniels or something? No. It means like Zechariah 12, 2, they will become intoxicated with power. Yasser Arafat, when he was in charge, stopped Bill Clinton from making a trip onto the Temple Mount. Intoxicated with power. The Edomites, the Palestinian people today, stopped the Jews from going on the Temple Mount. Look what will happen here. Verse 17. But upon Mount Zion, that's Jerusalem shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. And the house of Jacob, that's the Jewish people, shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. The house of Joseph, a flame. And the house of Esau, the stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them. And there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. What's going to happen? When Jesus Christ, look up here, please. When Jesus Christ comes back to Jerusalem, the Jewish people... Get all the promises he promised them. And the Edomites 
the descendants of Esau, the Palestinian people of today, are the stubble in the flame, and they're burned up. Jeremiah 49, 18, they'll be as Sodom and Gomorrah. Because Obadiah said, you burned my temple down, you will pay. The history and the prophecy of the Palestinian people, the Middle Eastern conflict that will break in to a full-blown war, only to be dealt with when Jesus Christ comes. And this is the only time in history we've been just like this. We're alive in the time. How do you deal with that knowledge? Father, thank you for this awesome book, an amazing book, articulate book, accurate book, a book that deals with the days in which we're living, a divine description of the days of destiny. All of this information, Father, is so key to our understanding of the times in which we're living and then how we live in these times. Thank you for your word and its exhortation to us eagerly to await the rapture of the church, the next main event in God's calendar of activities. In that precious name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. This is the only time in history that these two peoples, the Israelis and the Palestinians, have been in a situation that world leaders seem to think that they must do everything to resolve it. And it will only be resolved at the end of the tribulation period. That was Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. Dr. Richard Schmidt coming up, speaking about revival in the United States, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. A fuller view of the displacement caused by last week's quake is starting to emerge in Syria. More than 8,900 buildings were destroyed, leaving at least 11,000 people homeless. Those numbers are only expected to rise as more information comes in. Gospel workers in neighboring Lebanon are preparing for a new wave of Syrian refugees. Ask God to give wisdom to Heart for Lebanon, Triumphant Mercy, and many others. Meanwhile, two-thirds of teen girls have dropped out of school in one East African nation, and more than half the teen boys are out. Set Free Ministries seeks to remedy this and introduce the next generation to Christ through Light Academy. It's a brand-new secondary school offering Christian education and vocational training. Pray for teachers and staff as they introduce kids to Jesus and the spiritual freedom he offers. Help Set Free Ministries launch kids into a Christ-centered future at missionnews.org. Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Have you always wanted to visit the land of Israel? Imagine what it would be like to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. With Joshua Travel, you can visit Israel past, present, and prophetic. The Bible will come alive as you see places like the shepherd's field where our Lord was born, Caesarea Philippi, Cana of Galilee, Capernaum, the Garden of Gethsemane, and the Garden Tomb. You'll even experience an exciting boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. You'll visit each site with Bible in hand as we take the time to not just visit the sites, but to help you understand their importance to our biblical heritage and to our prophetic future. We will place special emphasis on the eternal city of Jerusalem, the most important city in the world, and the place from where Jesus will rule and reign one day. 
Call Joshua Travel today at 423-821-3635 to find out more about this trip of a lifetime, or you can visit us online at joshuatravel.com. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. and along with my brother Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. As I said at the outset of the program, I wanted to have America's pastor. Well, he's not America's pastor, but he's Prophecy Today weekend's pastor, Dr. Richard Schmidt, on the program again. And we wanted to talk about information that is important to the body of Christ. This is something that I think it's very important. It's been on my heart lately, and I want to address it today. But uh, welcome to the program, Dr. Schmidt. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our look at the book. Yes, sir. So this revival, as some are calling it, that's taking place in Kentucky at Asbury University, help me to understand what's going on. Well, here's what I believe is going on according to Scripture. The issue is, what is revival? What does the Bible state revival is? Well, if you go to your concordance and look up the word revival, you're not going to find it, basically, except in one instance within the New Testament. Multiple times it's brought out in the Old Testament for personal revival for a psalmist to national revival for Israel. So we all talk about what is revival. Can we have revival today? Well, I think we need to define that from a biblical standpoint. So the quickest thing that we can do to kind of bring this together is look at Ephesians chapter 2, which actually talks, it, it uses a Greek word that, quite frankly, could be translated revival, but it actually means to make alive or to quicken. In Ephesians 2, the Bible says, And you hath he made alive, quicken, basically revived, who are dead in trespasses and sins, in, what you, in which you also once walked, according to this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. So what's it telling us? Revival, really, true biblical revival, is evangelism. When someone is made alive, they're quickened, they're brought forth from spiritual deadness. That's what real, true revival is. So when you look at what's happening in uh, these particular couple of colleges, what are they having? Well, they're, they're quite frankly, they're having a wonderful time of worship. They're having mm-hmm. a good time of renewal in the Lord. But is that true revival? My answer is no. It's not, quote-unquote, revival, because there's four pieces the Bible tells us are always associated with evangelism. You can find those in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25 to 32. There's always prayer, which they're doing. There's always forsaking of sin, which apparently is happening. Mm. And there's unity, which, uh, uh, according to some of the things I watched on the Internet today, appear to be happening. But it's all to do one thing, and that's to focus on evangelism, people coming to Christ. The other issue that I think is very important When you look at the history of the revivals that have happened specifically at the school that's being named, you'll find out, well, it's a one-day revival or a two-day revival or 60 hours or a couple of days or a couple of weeks. Again, that is a wonderful worship time, a wonderful time of people potentially getting right with the Lord, but that's not revival. Revival is not categorized as a two- or three-day event. When the Bible looked at things of revival, we're looking at a massive amount of folks that are coming to Christ. People must be right with the Lord, of course, before they'll be effective in evangelism, and that may be the opening stages, which I believe is all that may be taking place at these colleges. Uh, The other 
I think important thing very quickly that we need to look at is where do where does evangelism take place? Well, again, we can go mm-hmm. right back to Acts chapter two, looking mm-hmm. at the day of Pentecost. What took place? The Holy Spirit came down, and what happened? The Lord added people to the church. It's evangelism. Mm-hmm. Yes, people are praying. Yes, people are trying to do things right, as I believe is happening maybe at these college campuses. But that, if you don't take it outside of the confines of the church or the school, it's not revival. So I think, uh, uh, Dr. Young, what we're looking at here, we're seeing, uh, uh, it's a, I, I don't want to slight what's mm. taking place there. I'm, I'm happy for them. I'm glad young people are mm-hmm. focusing on Christ and they're focusing on the Lord and they're worshiping. But until we get to where we get outside of ourselves and do what God has called us to do, two last verses I think on this on this issue. Luke chapter nineteen verse ten gives us the mission of Jesus Christ that the Lord Jesus Christ came to seek and to save those who are lost. That's the mission. Paul reiterates it First Timothy one fifteen. This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what to save sinners. So again, praise the Lord that some young people are uh, focusing on Christ, focusing on what the Lord can do, but uh, to call a 60-hour or three-day or even a three-week event revival, I think is a gross overstatement. Yes, and you know, again, like you said, Dr. Schmidt, we're not judging the folks. I just want people to understand, look, it's great We look forward to hearing more stories about this meeting of young people together doing great things. But it's not indicative of a revival in the true sense of the word. And that's what you've helped us to to see today. And and how does this fit into the end times? Well, what we're seeing is, again, uh, it's kind of interesting because in the end time scenario, unfortunately, if you look at 2 Timothy 3, 1, other like passages, we see that things are going to get worse and worse and worse. Now, I'll tell you, I would love to see a true biblical revival to take place, and maybe this will help focus mm-hmm. the entire Christian nation on what true revival is. Mm-hmm. So, But the unfortunate thing, and, and it's so sad that we are going to see things get worse and worse and worse. However, just like the folks at uh, uh, the college, I'm going to keep praying that God does something wonderful, something supernatural, something to help us reach others with the precious gospel of Jesus Christ during these perilous last days. Right. And I think that's so important that we reach out. We have two reasons we're on the earth right now. One is to glorify God in all that we do, which they are doing. And number two, it's to tell people about God's plan of redemption for all of mankind. Dr. Schmidt, thank you so much for helping us today. Again, I refer to you as America's pastor. You are our pastor on this radio program. You help us to have a clarity of thought on this, to not be misled, but to be wise and use discernment when we're praying for others. And for we, we do need to pray for revival, not only in America, but around the world, because troublesome times are coming, correct? Absolutely. And God bless you. Thanks so much for letting me give these couple of comments. Yes. Thank you so much. And folks, with everything that we've seen today, with the world as the way it's going, we can't help but think the rapture could happen at any moment. Let's keep looking up until 
Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee.